Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to Episode 5, Disability and Dependence with Claire Freeman and Paula Tesserero. What does disability have to do with the End of Life Choice Act? No one will be eligible for assisted dying just because of a disability. That's not in the eligibility criteria. I wondered the same thing until I spoke to a handful of disability advocates about the issue, including quadriplegic Claire Freeman and Disability Rights Commissioner Paul Tesserero. Not only do they think the Act has a direct impact on those with disabilities, it has flushed up some foundational ways of thinking which are extremely insulting for those that live with a disability every day. Chapter 6. Claire Freeman For those who haven't read her story or watched Claire on TV, she is wheelchair-bound. Claire has some movement in her arms and hands and displays an air of sophistication. She is beautiful. Claire has caught the eye of model scouts and landed jobs on runways internationally, wheelchair and all, but it's not been an easy road. Claire has been open about her attempts of suicide after her horrendous car crash when she was 17 that changed her life forever. Claire's mum was driving the car and fell asleep at the wheel. The car flipped and Claire sustained a spinal cord injury, losing control of her arms, hands and legs. She spent seven months in Auckland Hospital. We all assumed it would get better, but it didn't. I couldn't imagine living my life in a wheelchair and not being able to use my arms, so I took a lot of pills and ended up in hospital in a coma. That was her first attempted suicide. In the years that followed, Claire struggled to sleep properly and threw herself into work to take her mind off it. She also studied. Claire tried to commit suicide again. After the fourth attempt, Claire went to a suicide outreach clinic. It's there that she started to talk about assisted suicide. Both the psychologist and the psychiatrist suggested I explore assisted suicide in places overseas such as Switzerland. They didn't ask me about my lifestyle, my coping mechanisms. It was just, she has a broken neck, she can't move, why would she want to live? What I didn't realise was that it wasn't my broken neck that was the problem, it's just that I didn't have the skills to cope. Claire had surgery to stabilise metal work in her neck, but it went badly. She was in the worst pain in her life, and she lost more movement. That forced her to stop and sleep. I actually started reflecting on my life and lifestyle. I realised it wasn't my disability that was the problem, but all the stuff manifesting in my head. After battling depression and grief at the loss of the future she wanted, Claire has learnt to run again, at least metaphorically speaking. She has a degree in design, is studying for a PhD, and owns her home in Pegasus Bay Christchurch, And although the woman sitting in front of me looks young, she's lived a long life. It's coffee all round as Claire admits she had a big night out catching up with a male model acquaintance who'd been diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease. He's going blind. 
from the many stories that follow, it becomes clear that Claire likes to take care of those who don't fit in boxes, and she gives hopes to the down and out. I have a lot of questions for Claire, and I know she'll have insight and personal experience to add. I was at a dinner table with politicians and pro-euthanasia people, and they all said one of the worst things in the world would be having someone wipe your bum. So I stopped them and said, well, speaking from personal experience, I've had people wipe my ass, and I can tell you something, it's really not as bad as you think. They looked at me oddly. There's a rational fear at play in this discussion, and I get why we have that fear, but we need to break down some of these discourses. When Dad was in a critical condition, our family met with the health professionals who said if he pulls out of the coma, his quality of life will be so poor that they recommended not to continue treatment. Claire asked what kind of quality of life they meant. They said he would probably have to use a wheelchair and they were pretty sure there was brain damage. They said he's quite old and he's had a good life. The family agreed for treatment to continue and Claire's dad survived much of what was predicted, but among other things, he can no longer walk. Before the incident, he was a scientist and was fiercely independent. The sad thing is dad doesn't want us to see him being disabled, which is ironic considering I'm disabled. My sister went and looked after him for respite care. She said, the crazy thing is, yes, I had to wipe his ass and I had to put nappies on him and stuff, but we had a talk about it. And actually, when I was doing it, it was quite an intimate time between us. Her sister explained that the initial difficulty quickly changed to a closeness, a journey that demonstrated the truth about dignity. Claire says not only are people afraid of the unknown and dying itself, but also of losing what they call dignity, which is actually just the quality of life they are used to. Controversial Australian philosopher Peter Singer discusses the validity of euthanasia based on a person's quality of life, Claire says. He makes the assumption, essentially, that if you are disabled or critically ill, you have no quality of life. There's no point where their life will get better. That's why they should have that option of assisted dying. To Claire, that's an arrogant way to think. Her life story demonstrates the opposite. It's as if the value of someone's life is measured on the scale of function, that perception is active in the medical field today. I know through research that 80% of healthcare professionals wouldn't want to live with my condition. Claire has had to journey through the grief, loss, anger and frustration and create a new normal, one that is worth living. So it's no surprise why she's vested in this if it threatens those who will find themselves in her shoes. But how does she weigh this with giving people the right to make their own choices? I ask her how she interprets, it's my life, my choice. I think it's a massive reflection on our culture and society. I think it's a naive and sad idea, although on one level it makes sense and sounds fantastic and we all want choice and to be free, but it's just not that black and white. I feel like it's really superficial. I wish people would think about it a bit more. Choice is something we all want. It's seductive, beautiful, intoxicating, but choice comes with baggage. Claire says she would be sitting next to David Seymour, championing the act up until around three years ago. She wanted to use it for herself for nearly 20 years. In hindsight, it was just because I wasn't coping with life. What I realised is that I didn't have the support. The problem is that people with disabilities don't have the right support. We need to ensure they do before we even entertain the thought of a law like this. Otherwise, there isn't really a choice at all. Chapter 15. Paula Tessereo. Paula says many have found even the pretext of discussions around assisted dying personally insulting. Why is it particularly troubling? Because of the association of dignity with independence and because disabled people may be one of the most at-risk groups for coercion. 
and that is something that most people fail to understand or recognise or acknowledge, Paula says. When the top motivational factors in people choosing assisted dying in overseas jurisdictions include loss of independence, being unable to participate in community, loss of control and becoming a burden on others, then the disabled community rightfully has a reason to be concerned. That is something many disabled people deal with every day, Paula says. Much of what we heard in Parliament during debates on the EOLC bill was talk around the issues of dignity being associated with loss of control, which happens around the end of someone's life. This loss of control can be a daily existence for disabled people. What message does it send when an MP describes a family member's loss of control as undignified? What message does it send when we introduce a law like this, where internationally people choose to use assisted suicide and euthanasia because of this perceived indignity? Paula says it was insulting to hear the comments made by MPs in the chamber reflecting on seeing the reality of loved ones losing independence and dignity because someone had to care for them. Judging by my own social media posts, those comments were hurtful and they had an effect on the disabled community. Many have been offended about what has been said in these debates and the apparent dismissal of concerns of the disabled community. You have to consider what message it sends to legalise something like this. Granted, the eligibility criteria does not allow someone to qualify for assisted dying purely because of a disability. But for many impairments, there is no bright-line test distinguishing them from a terminal condition, Paula says. There are many types of impairments that by their very nature are terminal. The point at which someone becomes certain they are within the six-month prognosis is not clear. There's no bright-line test between them. It's kind of like the Togs Togs Undies ad that used to be on TV. These factors mean a number of disabled people are very likely to be eligible or become eligible very easily, and they are also the most likely to feel vulnerable to coercion. We can't pretend some won't be disproportionately impacted by this law. There are people with certain impairments who can be more vulnerable around coercion. I have become increasingly aware of my ignorance when it comes to those suffering every day with disabilities. I think most of us Kiwis would say that one of the trademarks we're proud of is our independence. Maybe it's just because we're a little island off in the corner of the world, doing our own thing, trailblazing. It's forced us to foster skills with the old number eight wire. We've had to make things work ourselves. And I think somehow it's become part of the fabric of our mindset that it's best not to need anyone. In our fast-paced world of getting things done, productivity being success, and more is best, Having someone reliant on you is like having a crutch. It's an attitude I have to confront in myself and it's something the End of Life Choice Act definitely confronts in each of us. If being afraid of having others care for us is at play, it's going to be really hard to make an analytical decision on a piece of law like this one. As many things this year have come at us Kiwis, one thing we do well is to make the most of the opportunity and look for ways to turn situations for good I think using this vote to reassess some personal struggles around dependence, dying and death, is one of those opportunities. So in the next episode, it's fitting that we look at suffering, dying and palliative care with Professor Roderick McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of the Final Choice book from your local bookstore 
or online at thefinalchoice.nz, where an ebook version is also available.